So here's where we are. Young King Josiah has come to the throne and he follows Yahweh with his whole heart. Nevertheless, the people continue with their old ways of idol worship on the hilltops, under every spreading tree, and even inside the temple. Assyria has reached the zenith of its power at this time and has begun its decline. Um, Its greatest and most brutal king, Ashurbanipal, has died and a weaker Assyrian king has come to the throne. The Babylonians in the east under Nabopolassar are rising as the new world power. King Josiah is now about 26 years old. We kind of skipped about 20 years here. And he decides to repair the temple. As you know, it's been stripped and ransacked and used for idol worship and all sorts of things over the years. But every time someone goes into the temple, doorkeepers collect admission. And Josiah figures there's got to be plenty of money from that to restore the old building and its furnishings. So he sends his secretary, Shaphan, to the temple to get the ball rolling. Shaphan gets with Hilkiah the high priest, and they get the work started with a whole raft of carpenters and masons and construction workers. Then Hilkiah makes a startling discovery. He finds an ancient, dusty old scroll. He starts to toss it out, but then pauses and thinks, you know, maybe I better take a quick look inside this. And in moments, he realizes he's holding in his hands the very book of the law that Moses had written down all those years ago. Before he died, Moses gave the Israelites this very scroll and told them to take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you, for I know that after my death you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn from the way I have commanded you. So that all of that was back in Deuteronomy 31 verses 26 and 29. I was reading out of the NIV there. Well, Moses pretty much nailed it. He knew knew these people. And I suspect that having um, that book of the law right out in plain sight was very uncomfortable for those who wanted to squelch Yahweh and take power for themselves. So I'm not at all surprised it ended up being stuffed into the back of a closet Thank goodness, though, it hadn't been destroyed. Hilkiah immediately brings the book of the law to Shaphan, who reads it and realizes its significance. Shaphan, of course, takes it to King Josiah and reads it to him. So let's take a moment to remember what exactly is in this precious scroll. You can find the contents preserved, as far as we can tell, in the book of Deuteronomy. We don't know how much of Deuteronomy is written in this particular scroll, but we can, from the context of the things that Josiah does and the things that happen, we can be pretty sure the scroll that Shaphan reads to Josiah has the Ten Commandments in it, as well as all the basic provisions of the law about honoring God, honoring each other's bodies, families, and possessions, 
and laws about being just and trustworthy. We can also be sure it includes the various festivals and offerings and sacrifices that form the rhythm and structure of God's interaction with his people. And it definitely has Deuteronomy chapter 28 in it or something very much like it that describes the magnitude of the blessings the Lord has for his people. You will be blessed in your coming in and your going out. You will be blessed in everything you put your hand to. Your enemies will flee before you and all the people on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. That same chapter, surely, that same chapter in Deuteronomy 28 also has the um, quote curses in it. So, and that also is surely in this scroll, the warnings that um, the warnings against following the ways of the pagan people instead of following the Lord. For example, you will be cursed in everything you do, plagued by disease, defeated by your enemies, an object of horror to all who look on you. In hunger and thirst and dire poverty, you will serve those the Lord will send against you. Your choice, blessings or curses. Well, when King Josiah hears all this, he tears his robe and cries. Neither we nor those who have gone before us have done any of the things the Lord has required of us. Surely his anger burns against us. And he sends Shaphan and the priest Hilkiah and a couple of other officials to find someone who knows more about what is in this book of law. Which is so interesting to me. Josiah has been following Yahweh for like 10 years now. But apparently, up until this time, all he knows about Yahweh is what the Holy Spirit has taught him. So this ought to be interesting. The men Josiah sends out find a prophetess named Huldah. I think it's very interesting that the men did not go to the prophet Zephaniah or Jeremiah, don't you think? I mean, they certainly knew them. But apparently, Huldah is an even more respected resource than either of them when it comes to matters of Yahweh. Maybe Zephaniah and Jeremiah are more associated with warning people about the coming disaster. And perhaps Huldah is known as a wise woman, a prophetess, a keeper of the ancient ways. Well, they've come to the right place. Huldah says to tell the king that the Lord says, I am indeed going to do everything in the book of the law. All the disasters described there are about to overtake Judah because they have forsaken me and worshiped other gods. Then she softens a bit and says, but tell the king, the Lord says this also, because your heart has responded to me, and you have humbled yourself and torn your robes and wept before me, I will gather you to your fathers before all this comes to pass so that your eyes will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on Judah. When King Josiah hears the word of the Lord spoken to him by Huldah, he gathers together everyone from the least to the greatest, and he himself stands before them 
and reads them the book of the law. He stands by the pillar of the temple where kings are anointed, and he pledges to keep the commands of the Lord, all of them, and to do it with his heart and all his soul. Then all the people pledge the covenant as well. Now remember that idols of Baal and Asherah poles and altars for idol worship are inside the temple. There are even altars to the sun, moon, and stars up on the roof of the temple. At this point, the temple is nothing more than a large, central, polytheistic shrine that has fallen into disrepair. Josiah has already ordered repairs, but it isn't until he hears the book of the law that he realizes the biggest problem Yahweh has with Judah is the idol worship. I don't think he realizes until this moment that only Yahweh is to be worshipped anywhere. He's been raised to think Baal and Asherah are also gods. So King Josiah orders that the temple be cleared of anything at all related to idols. And guess where they take all that stuff for burning? To the Kidron Valley, of course. We've learned about idle remains and remnants being thrown in the Kidron Valley before by other kings. Not only are the idols and their paraphernalia burned, but King Josiah scatters the ashes over human graves so the bits will not will be considered unclean and the people won't try to um, gather it and uh, re-smelt the ore and try to put the idols back together again. In 2 Kings 23.7, we find out there are even male shrine prostitutes who have quarters inside the temple. This verse, as well as the whole idea of temple prostitution on behalf of any kind of any idol, is a subject of controversy among scholars. I'm not going to debate it, uh, but it's here in the in the Bible, and so I do want to recognize that this verse is in the text in the particular way and place that it is, and so it needs to be considered. It means that part of the idol worship in the temple involved physical, literal, sexual prostitution as worship. The Hebrew word here is not the normal word for prostitute, but is a male form of the word for sacred prostitution. So now think about this. Who exactly are these male prostitutes there for? Are they there for the women who come to worship? I sincerely doubt it. They are there for the men. Obviously, men control all aspects of worship in this culture. They always have. And what kind of men would be consorting with these male prostitutes? Do you think the male prostitutes were there as a a special benefit for any man who might be homosexual? You know, I hope you know that homosexual men typically make up less than 10% of any given population. And back then, they didn't even have a word or even a concept for homosexuality. So no, of course not. Common sense tells you it wasn't for homosexuality. As we learned back in class 18, male-on-male sex was a form of rape 
usually in the context of shaming an enemy. These male prostitutes were available for sex with heterosexual men, sex that was abusive and profane by its very nature. And so King Josiah has all the rooms used for this purpose torn down, as well as all the rooms used by women to weave devotional items used in the worship of Asherah. Josiah then goes on a rampage throughout Judah, desecrating all the high places and utterly destroying all the idols. But he does something interesting with the priests. You would think, given the cultural customs of the day, he would kill all the priests who have led the people in idol worship. That's what we saw happened back um, in the days of Elijah. But remember, Yahweh worship is all mixed up, intertwined with idol worship in this culture at this time where we are now. So some, if not most, of the priests were apparently from the line of Aaron. At least that's what I'm guessing, because Josiah does not kill them off. Instead, he brings them all to Jerusalem. He lets them live there and serve in some capacity with the other priests at the temple, but he does not allow them to serve at the altar of the Lord. Very interesting. Next, he desecrates the area of the Valley of Hinnom that was used for child sacrifice. Then he goes through the temple, taking down all the idols and statues and altars and even the decorative stuff that has been added over the years. And of course, he throws all the idol-related rubble into the Kidron Valley. The passage in 2 Kings 23 specifically mentions the destruction of the Phoenician goddess, goddess Ashtoreth, Kamash, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites. These, in particular, it says, were vile and detestable to the Lord. And over the years, they'd all been syncretized into the worship of the people of Judah. Josiah destroys them all. Then he moves north into what used to be Israel. Josiah clearly sees the kingdom as being united under God. He sees the remaining people in Israel as part of God's people. Josiah pulls down the altar at Bethel that used to have a golden calf on it. He burns everything he finds there and then grinds it down to a powder. And he wants to spread the powder over human, human bones so the people cannot reclaim it and reconstitute it ever again for worship. So he looks over to the nearby hillside where there are, where there are a bunch of old tombs. And he has the bones brought out of the tombs. But then he notices a particular tombstone and asks about it. And the people tell him, that's the tomb of the prophet who long ago prophesied all the things you have done today. Now, I don't know if you remember that story. But way back when Israel and Judah first split into two separate kingdoms, 
the very first king of the northern tribes, King Jeroboam I, the one who split the kingdom, set up two golden calves for the people to worship. He set one up in Bethel, just across the border from Jerusalem, and he set one up way in the north where the tribe of Dan had settled. And he did it because he didn't want the people to go down to Jerusalem to worship. He wanted a complete breakaway. He wanted his kingdom to have new gods. Back then, God sent a prophet to confront King Jeroboam at the new altar, saying, Altar, O altar, a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you, O altar, he will burn the bones of the so-called priests who are making offerings to this golden calf. And now, here King Josiah is, 150 years later, trying to destroy this altar in such a way that it can never be rebuilt. So when the people tell him that's the tomb of the prophet who prophesied all the things you've done today, King Josiah orders that the tomb of the prophet be left undisturbed. And in fulfillment of the prophecy, Josiah orders all the priests of that particular altar slaughtered and placed on the altar and all of it burned in a funeral pyre that is then topped by human bones from the nearby tombs. Pretty dramatic. Then he gets rid of all the mediums and necromancers, those speaking with the voice of the dead, rather than pointing people to God. Then he orders the people to celebrate Passover. There's one problem here, though. This is all top down. This is King Josiah's will and is definitely not reflective of the will of the people. Second Chronicles 25 tells of a grand and glorious Passover where King Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all the officials bring thousands of sacrifices. But if you read closely, the sacrificial animals are given to the lay people by King Josiah. The people apparently do not bring their own sacrifices. I don't think the people have any intention of following any of this. And so it says, the Lord does not turn away from his anger. He had sworn to wait until Josiah's own death, but the Lord does intend to carry out the words that have been spoken through the prophets. He says, I will remove Judah from my presence just like I removed Israel. I will even reject Jerusalem and the temple. The Lord knows the heart of the people. And sure enough, in Jeremiah chapter 7, the Lord tells Jeremiah to go stand at the gate of the temple and call out, change your ways, people, and the Lord will relent and let you live here in this land. Stop oppressing the poor and the immigrants. Stop shedding innocent blood. Stop following other gods to your own ruin. How can you do all these things and then come to this temple and think you are safe because you say the right words and do the right rituals? I have called and called to you, but you do not answer. 
So don't even bother praying for these people, Jeremiah. The Lord actually tells Jeremiah this many times. In chapter 15, the Lord says, really, it's not you, Jeremiah. I wouldn't listen even if Moses and Samuel were interceding for them. Stop praying for them. I will no longer listen. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place and on everyone and everything in it. You might as well cut off your hair and throw it away now and start your lament for the people of Judah have done evil in my sight. But even in the midst of the Lord telling Jeremiah to stop praying for them, there are constant refrains peppered throughout the book of Jeremiah that if the people themselves will repent, even now, the Lord will relent and will restore them. But the Lord knows this is not going to happen. And in chapter 16, he tells Jeremiah not to marry or have children, or else they too will be caught up in the death and destruction that is on the doorstep. The Lord tells Jeremiah not to give the people any comfort at all, not even to sympathize with those who are at a funeral or to rejoice at a wedding. And when people ask what's the matter with him, He's to tell them of their wickedness and the coming destruction. Well, of course, this is the exact opposite of what the people want to hear. All the leaders, the kings and officials and priests and prophets have all been saying to the people, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They want the people to remain calm and to keep trusting their leaders. So they keep telling the people everything's fine when it's obviously not fine. And the Lord says, they aren't even ashamed of themselves for doing this. Now remember, Jeremiah is standing at the gate of the temple saying all these things out loud. And that doesn't go over well at all. In fact, in chapter 11, the Lord shows Jeremiah that the people of his own hometown are plotting to kill him in order to silence him. But the Lord says, don't worry, Jeremiah, I will bring disaster on them. But think about this, poor Jeremiah, his heart is breaking over the willful sin he sees. He has visions of the nightmares, really, of the coming destruction of his entire nation and people from his own hometown who have known him all his whole life are trying to kill him. Then the Lord has Jeremiah go stand at every other gate in the entire city of Jerusalem and tell the people not to do business on the Sabbath, that if they'll rest on the Sabbath and stop bringing loads in and out of these gates, the Lord will respond with great blessings on Jerusalem. But that would require that the people stop their commerce and consumerism and make room for the Lord God in their lives. And of course, that does not happen. So it's been about 10 years now since Josiah instituted his reforms. And in that time, Babylon under King Nabopolassar has continued to consolidate and strengthen his position as a world power. Babylon is now a serious threat to Assyria. They've allied themselves with the Medes who live just north and east of them. 
So generally speaking, the Babylonians occupy what we would now call Iraq. The Medes occupy what we now call Iran. And the Assyrians occupy part of what we now call Turkey. And all three of them are fighting for domination of the entire area, the big green blob, all the way down to and including Egypt. Warfare at this time is seasonal. They fight during the good weather, as you know, and the attacks on Assyria have been going on for years now. It's now 612 BCE, and the Babylonians and the Medes and others attack Assyria again. This time, the Assyrian capital of Nineveh falls. The Assyrians are forced to retreat further west, so they move their capital to Haran. They form an alliance with Egypt, and over the next two or three years, they make plans to resist takeover by the Babylonians and the Medes. Fast forward three or four years to 609 BCE. Nabopolassar has fallen ill and has appointed his son Nebuchadnezzar as his general. The Egyptians are marching north to join with the Assyrians to try to fight Babylon off. And of course, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt has to march right through Judah to get there. And for some reason, King Josiah decides to march out to stop Pharaoh Necho. There's no real explanation for this in the Bible. Perhaps he's finally paying attention to all the prophecies about not relying on Egypt for protection. So maybe he figures he needs to treat Egypt as an enemy. Egypt has certainly been an unreliable ally at best. Maybe he feels like the Babylonians will be an improvement over the Assyrians. So he wants the Assyrians to be defeated. We, we really don't know what his reasoning is, but based on what happens next, I think the problems that Josiah's afraid Egypt will subject Judah on their way through the, the land to either, either on their way to the battle or on their way back. So King Josiah marshals his troops and marches up to Megiddo his fortress on the edge of the Jezreel Valley, that great big plain, which seems custom made for large scale battles. But Pharaoh Necho sends him a message saying, I'm not attacking you. God has told me to hurry. So get out of my way or he will destroy you. That's a very interesting message. The general plural word for gods, Elohim, is used, and we know that word is often used in both the plural and the singular sense in the Bible. Elohim is often used to refer to Yahweh, to the Lord. In the mouth of the Pharaoh, though, you have to wonder which God he's got in mind. At the end, though, the grammar is masculine singular. It says, or he will destroy you. So Necho has a particular God in mind. We have no way of knowing which God. It is only from the context that biblical translators assume it was actually Yahweh. Because Josiah ignores Pharaoh Necho's warning. And when they meet in battle at Megiddo, King Josiah is mortally wounded. And so Huldah's prophecy is fulfilled that Josiah will not live to see the downfall of Judah. He is transported back 
to Jerusalem, where he dies and is buried with great honor in the tomb of the kings, and his son, Jehoahaz, becomes king of Judah. We'll stop there and spend a little time in our breakout groups reflecting on the scroll found in the temple, the scroll that changed King Josiah's life. So what what did y'all end up talking about? It was I thought it was just so cool when I was thinking about this um, this study. Actually, to tell you the truth, I had written completely different questions for this class. I do these weeks in advance, and when I look, printed them out to you know review them, I realized we had talked about every single one of them last week. So I. <laughs> had to redo the entire study guide this week and I got to thinking I said well you know this this class is about that old scroll and about what Joe King Josiah found there and how it changed his whole life and then I was like what would it be like if we found something like that and I was like slap you know that's what exactly what we've been doing so talk to me about what what you all thought Erica's uh, gonna I was, go first. Oh, sorry, Marlene. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm <laughs> after you, Marlene. Erica goes. Oh, okay. Uh, I was just, I was just saying um, that going back and reading, reading these, you know, this whole part of the Bible with your guidance, with a new translation, with new footnotes, with with the 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 new scholarship that is now available it's almost like reading a completely different book um so many things i never saw before i can see now um that completely change for me the 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 message the focus the context of the the hebrew bible and the early history of God's um, interaction with people. It's what, been, it's what, been. What did it remarkable. change kind of from to? How has it shifted? Well, a lot of it in the past was just so confusing and, and seemed so inconsistent with the God um, that Jesus represented in the New Testament and that Paul talked about. Um, and the other letters that we have. And um, while my faith said, you know, this is the same God with human, under, you know, different human understanding, what has been, has helped me to sort of integrate these views has been more, you know, understanding that, that you know, A, um, a lot of this history was, I mean, I was always taught that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which, you know, when you really stand back and think logically, well, how could you? Because it, it tells about his own death um, and things that happened after he died. Um, but that was, that was what I was always taught. And then I was taught that, um, you know, the, there was one single author and then you see that, oh no, these are multiple stories mushed together to try and create an overall narrative. And when you really look closely, like the example I gave was the story of Noah. This is the first time I read the story of Noah and realized that in one chapter, it says what we all, you know, were taught a bring two of every animal into the ark. 
And then a few chapters later, it says, bring seven clean animals and two of all the rest. And I, oh, wait, what? <laughs> that was, um, you know, th those kinds of things, those inconsistencies that show that these were humans involved in telling the story as they understood it at different points in history. Um, Very cool. That's been, Very that's been really um, revelatory for me and given me a much better perspective of how the story is being told. Right, right. All right, I got to hear from Erica. Where did Erica go? Um, we were talking about the question five that says, have you found unexpected comfort and how so? And so for me, I was sharing with the group that it's, I think part of this Bible study has helped me recognize that I've been taught a lot of the binary thinking, the you got to walk the narrow and straight to avoid going to hell or eternal damnation, all of that kind of fear base. And so I think that this is a Bible study that I will have to go from the beginning and, and rewatch to really allow a lot of this stuff to soak. But I am finding that it is starting to kind of um, slowly get rid of some of that fear that was just bondage in my life that I lived so many years afraid of if I do this, then I'm, this is going to happen. And now it's almost like the resting in the pretzel time that God is relentlessly pursuing us. And he is, it, it's simple. He wants us to rest and trust in him, loving him, trying to remain humble, which that's going to be a daily challenge and allowing our perspective to shift on not trying to judge others because they too are in pretzel time and they are in a unique journey. And we have to trust that although they might be at a, a different understanding of what we're learning in this Bible study, kind of reeling it in and going back to, it's not about judgment. It's about humility and love. And can I continue to trust God and hits pretzel time with that? So kind of what, what is it for others? What has surprised you or shifted? Um, if anything, you don't have to like make this up. You can be like truthful. Nothing changed. <laughs> well, oh, oh, for me, for me, sorry, Woody, I'm going to go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Wrestle with our thumbs. All right. Um, let's see. For me, and this was from the very beginning, it was that Jesus did not really have much new material and what he was doing was basically leading them back to the main points or the main stories or the, yeah, maybe the main points of the old Testament by using parables and language that the people in his particular society and generation could understand. And, and uh, I did not, recognize that I was thought the Old Testament was completely different from the New Testament. And I thought, you know, Jesus came to bring us new news. And the good news is that the news never changed. And it's still relevant today. What I was going to say, and I, I agree with all of that, what I was going to say was that I have realized that both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, the the point, it seems to me, the purpose is to 
instruct uh, how God wants people to live. This is this is how you should live. The Hebrew Bible uh, includes both uh, the carrot and the stick approach. Um, you know, if you if you if you live correctly, you'll have all these wonderful things happen to you. If you don't live correctly, you'll have all these horrible things happen to you. Whereas the New Testament takes the more the positive carrot approach. Um, that that and, uh, yeah, just the more the more positive approach. It doesn't have the hellfire and brimstone kind of feeling that the Hebrew Bible does. And they and the cultures had shifted by that time. I mean, we're talking a span of thousands of years within the Bible, you know. Um, so mm-hmm. there, the culture had shifted from barbaric pre-Iron Age culture through to now, you know, Greek Roman, more civilized. Um, it was just a like Julie was saying, it's different point of view. People. Jesus talked to people how they related, but I think it's really cool that when Jesus inaugurated his memory, his ministry in his first sermon, he said that he stated his purpose. He gave his mission statement and he pulled it directly from Isaiah 61 saying, I have come to heal the lame, heal the lame, heal the blind you know, bring in the Lord's good favor, you know, the Lord's love. And to Woody's point, that verse in Isaiah 61, one and two actually ends with a day of the Lord phrase. And Jesus didn't quote that part. He stopped there before quoting it. Because the main point, as Erica pointed out, is that God loves us and will do absolutely anything <laughs> to communicate that to us, you know, right? Yeah. yeah. Ross had also brought up um, the fact that so many people look at the narratives and the God of the Old Testament, you know, as frequently referred to, um, and use it as a way to sort of argue that, that, God is vindictive and bloodthirsty and and I'm I'm paraphrasing for you here, Ross. You may want to step in and correct me. <laughs> uh, almost advocated genocide on several levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um and it and and one of the takeaways that I've had in going through this is that this is very much God's interaction with with the people of Israel and with humanity in general is kind of like how we work with our children, where you take them a step at a time to to change that they're capable of or learning that they're capable of and don't try to jump several steps and get beyond their ability to absorb and process. So while we look from our perspective back at some of the things in the law and some of the practices and think, oh, how, how horrible, why would God do that? When, you know, 
when it's placed in the context of the culture all around them, we can see that it's a step closer to God's ideal for humanity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, and that is, um, I think that's very comforting. You know, Paul talked about being taught as a child and, and, and that sort of thing. And that's, it feels like that's what God is doing with humanity, starting all the way back, you know, early, early, early in Genesis is saying, okay, come a little closer, come a little closer. And then, you know, when you come closer, I will reward you. When you take a step back, consequences, you know, <laughs> Well, you know, just what, like we did with our kids. Something I found um, helpful that has been comforting to me, that has been helpful for me to realize, is that the Hebrew Bible is the story of God's relationship with the people of Israel only. And that we are not reading the story of God's relationship with the Phoenicians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians that we are only seeing the story written from the perspective of the Lord's relationship with Israel. Um, We are seeing, beginning to see in the prophets on the fringes, we're beginning to see that the Lord cares about the Egyptians and the Assyrians and considers them his people also, but we're just not getting that story. So um, that's, that's helpful for me. (coughs) Excuse me. Getting back to Ross's point about genocide, because what what we're seeing is, and we saw in several places where the Lord said, you know, what I'm doing with these other nations, the ones I'm driving out before you, is not because you're great, Israel, it's because of what they've been doing, you know. So, you know, there's like this whole other dialogue and this whole other story, and I have to believe that God was reaching out to those people, they, they may not have known God's name as Yahweh, but they, I be, have to believe they knew God, that they had that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, uh, Lumar, I know you've taught Bible for many years. What, do you have anything? <laughs> you've, Lumar has taught discipleship studies in the Methodist church for many years. If you want to unmute and share with us, you know, you, you may not have seen anything that, that shifted or changed for you. No, I, I wouldn't say that a lot shifted or changed, but it just emphasized so much that's been coming together in my life personally for the last five years or so about just love, just the, the overarching theme of both the Old Testament and New Testament is love, love one another love yourself. You can't serve from an empty vessel. You know, that has really been brought home to me. And over the course of this study, I have also participated in several other Bible studies. And it's just, it's just been amazing to me how they have um, intertwined, you know, how they have folded over on one another, how the themes have been consistent. It's like God's trying to tell me something through multiple you know, methods. And I'm in, I'm in different groups with different people. And, but the, but the message, even my morning devotionals, the messages are all so similar. Um, And I, you know, to me, it just makes, makes God alive 
you know, he's alive now and he's reaching out for every single one of us all the time. And we just have to be open. And I think that's been more, um, probably the most prominent theme or Mm -hmm. um, the biggest takeaway for me is that you don't reach a certain level and you don't go any further. That's not it. There's always something to learn and um, whatever your situation. And I don't know if I've shared with this group, but the past year and a half, I have shared with Gail, but the past year and a half has been particularly challenging for me. And so, you know, I have definitely needed this, um, this support and this theme of love. Um, and I, and, and just sharing that to say that no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, um, you know, God is always there and he's always within reach mm-hmm. and I'll shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to shut up. Um, that, and I, and, uh, um, Woody, I know you've got to log off here. Um, and, and we're almost done, I think, but, but, um, I also want to make sure that, that you are feeling better equipped with tools for how to read scripture that you could be dropped down in any part of scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, prophets or history or other writings or epistles. And you would know now when you hit something that doesn't resonate with the Holy Spirit within you, that you would have a series of tools in your backpack to be able to back up and say, okay, what am I missing here? And, and that you would know where to look and how to go about looking for these things. Any other comments from the questions, um, things that you feared, things that surprised you or anything else that came up from anybody? I know Donnick was having technical difficulties. Um, Okay. All right. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you all. This felt like a very Thanksgiving sort of um, session to me. Um, These questions, just looking back over the blessings that we've shared uh, in this study. And I hope that you have a wonderful holiday and we'll see you the week after. You too, Gail. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Have happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye.